Hey, listeners, before the episode starts, I just want to let you all know that this episode, this special episode, uh, will be a two-parter. So the first part is our interview with Damon Cagnolati. I believe I got that right. Um, and then our part two of the uh, episode will come out on Wednesday, and we'll have Damon giving his perspectives on a story or two. Uh, enjoy the episode. Welcome to What do you bring to the table? This is your girl Sylvia, she, her, and hers. Hey, this is Tori, she, her, and hers. And we are here for another episode, another fresh, hot serving of what are you going to bring to the table? What are you bringing to the table? What are you going to bring to the table? <laughs> um, we do have a guest yeah. with oh, us what, today. Yeah. What you bringing to the table? What you bringing? What you bringing? Uh... <laughs> We do have a guest today. Uh, again, I'm just like honored that we've been able to have two, now three awesome people come and share their story, share their voice. Uh, we were talking before this, we started. Uh, one of the things that we feel like we're doing here is is giving an avenue for voices that need to be heard. You know, I mean, it just needs yeah. to be heard. And so right. we have. Um, do you want to introduce him, Sylvia? Since he's kind of like your second degree of separation yes. or whatever i guess you would call it right so uh as uh mr stefan montgomery has said i don't hang out with slouches <laughs> uh this is damon uh and damon i don't want to chop up your last name don't so how do you say it. your last name cagnolati oh yes got it right cagnolati <laughs> Yeah, he is the um, executive director of Emerge, um, and Emerge stands for something. So do you want to go ahead and let Absolutely. our listeners know? Absolutely. Emerge stands for Elevated Minds, Embracing Righteousness, and Gaining Equality. Nice. Awesome. And then what is, like, how, how did this all come about? Like, t- tell us a little bit about Emerge. Well, tell us a little so, bit about yourself and then and then go into Emerge. Yeah. You know, who are you sure. first, Damon? Sure. <laughs> I, think I, can, I think I can do a little bit of okay. both. Okay, perfect. <laughs> so uh, I'll start off with uh, talking and chewing bubblegum at the same time. <laughs> um, yeah. Which is a phrase that my dad actually used to say to me all the time he used to say you know you can't walk and chew bubblegum at the same time <laughs> uh, my father was a very linear kind of guy and uh, he, he he made sure to kind of you know raise me in that kind of household where it was very kind of strict you know rules and regulations and kind of you know protocols and all of those kind of things uh, he was somebody who was very present in my life too as well um, but he and my mother uh, although they were they, they were although they were never married they actually figured out a way to uh, somehow uh, do this thing that people now call co-parenting. I, I, I never, oh, yeah. never heard of it, but I just kind of grew up yeah. with 
you know, between two houses and, you know, just watching and listening to my mom and dad just work together um, just to, to, to raise me. <laughs> So, um, but yeah. Well, they did something right. I hope. I hope they did. <laughs> no, no, no. Thank you for that, Sylvia. <laughs> no, they, they definitely did a great job. Um, I, I love them. They're amazing. They always made sure to, um, to make sure that I had everything that I needed. Um, and, and a lot of that was, a lot of that included books. Mm. Um, I, I really wasn't like what I would consider to be like a heavy reader you know, growing up, um, you know, the biggest trick that they actually pulled on me, you know, in, 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 in grade school was when they took the pictures out of the books. At least that's how I felt. And I only had to read, you know, all prose literature and things like that. So I grew up going to a private Catholic school in Inglewood, um, called St. John's, uh, that was from like K through eighth grade. And it was a very small kind of nice tight knit, you know, kind of community. Um, I, I literally have eight friends who, you know, we have been knowing each other since we were in kindergarten, taking wow. naps together, you know, on the cots. And, uh, you know, we, we were still lifelong friends to this day. Uh, after that, I actually uh, spent most of my time um, at, at King Drew and uh, as a, 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 a prospective kind of med student, I had dreams of becoming a doctor. So I went off to a high school that was a magnet school in Compton, California, and um, it was actually a, a pretty famous location. It's directly across the street from where um, King Hospital is. Okay. Uh, it actually had a bit of a, a reputation back in the 1980s for being like the number one uh, trauma center in the entire nation, hmm. um, uh, largely because they had a very strong trauma team there and, and a very just strong kind of trauma ser services that they were able to provide to the surrounding neighborhoods at a time where violence was kind of sort of high. Mm -hmm. yeah. So they saved people's lives and, and, and got folks right on back out there. Mm. Um, so used to want to be a doctor until I actually got uh, into undergrad and I had to take all math and science courses and um, that that's that quarter that I had to take all math and science courses really kind of it changed it changed something changed in me yeah. um I actually it, it wasn't even really that I couldn't do the work although I, at first there was that kind of fear but it wasn't that I couldn't actually do the work what I began to actually notice was something that my dad was actually trying to tell me through the books that he would always kind of surround me by which is the importance of self-discovery mm. right and like for mm. me it actually took place in in terms of how it is that i learn best mm -hmm. right what kind of environments that i learn best mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. i i switched my major to become from biological sciences which was pre-med right uh to becoming an english major mm. and so uh when i became an english major or, or rather what led me to becoming a kind of english major uh is is really because I had friends and I also had some kind of ability to, to, to like write. My friends actually helped me to improve my abilities to write. So without them, I wouldn't have actually made it here at all. Right. And, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, that includes family members, you know, mm -hmm. mentors and things like mm -hmm. that. Um, so I ended up actually having a little bit of a gift with writing and that was, it was, it was, you know, a gift that was good enough to me, enough to get me into Penn State, where I went to graduate school. Mm -hmm. um, 
was the number one composition and rhetoric program in the nation at the time, and I think still is. And um, from there, that's when I actually started to get into the study of teaching, uh, mm-hmm. the study of teaching writing and how to teach writing mm-hmm. best. Mm-hmm. Um, because of where it is that I came from, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, we we, we kind of talked a little bit before uh, uh, the show about uh, a different world, and the the, the you know me, me kind of you know watching that college uh, on the TV screen. I, I used to think that it was the college that I that I uh, grew up from, like right <laughs> down the street. I, I actually grew up in LA, down the street from USC uh, on 36th Place in uh, uh, between Normandy and Western. So it's kind of like a, a, a relatively well-known uh, mm-hmm. area uh, in the neighborhood. But um, coming from that area, there weren't that many people who I knew who, who went on to become like English professors or to teach writing mm-hmm. or, you know, to kind of do that. Mm-hmm. So, so I figured, hey, well, maybe I could kind of come back and like, you know, do that while I was out in Pennsylvania. So <laughs> that's what I did. I ended up coming back to Los Angeles and uh, um, got a job teaching at Cerritos College. And uh, before long, um, I actually ended up starting a nonprofit called Emerge, Elevated Minds, uh, Embracing Righteousness and Gaining Equality, uh, really as a way to try to bring, um, open up lines of access and communication between uh, academia, right, and the community. Hmm. Um, I do consider the community college to be a part of academia, right? Academia, if we consider that to be a culture, right, mm-hmm. the name of that culture would be academia. The language that those folks actually speak would be academies, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. You know, I kind of play, me and my friends, we kind of play around with that stuff. Um, but I wanted to be able to create bridges between the neighborhood that I actually came from and academia. Yeah. I figured, you know, hey, writing is something that is required and kind of important. And it's also a major kind of tumbler, if not the whole key for getting into higher ed. Yep. Maybe I could come back yep. and teach some folks how to write a little bit differently. Yeah. <laughs> so wow. that's kind of how Emerge actually came into existence. That's uh, um, I, so many questions, so many questions popping up in my head. Um I think uh, one of the first questions, uh, have you published anything? Um, is there somewhere we can read your writing, share it with other people? Sure, sure. Yeah. As a matter of fact, there is uh, an essay in a, um, it's a, called a Community Reflections. It's actually an academic journal. Um, if you type in uh, Community Reflections journal, uh, Damon Cagnolotti, then you'll see uh, one of my essays actually published. It's called Battling to Be Heard. And that essay actually recounts the history of not just my time at King Drew, but also the, the, the birthplace of Emerge and how Emerge kind of came into existence. Um, Emerge is actually uh, a group that has its roots that goes all the way back to 2002. It really started as like just a kind of, a kind of way to get some kids out of the hallways when they weren't when they were ditching class <laughs> you know what i'm saying or 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 whenever nutrition or you know lunchtime actually was, was was going on it was just a way to get some kids like into a safe space where they could kind of talk about hip-hop and about things that were going on in their lives and social topics and political mm-hmm. topics like we just kept that going and ended up adding some like community engagement components to it and programs and services like mentoring and like uh, outreach and like community car washes and things like that. 
So that's that's kind of how that's that's the the real <laughs> true <laughs> Hollywood story <laughs> of, uh, of of Emerge and how it came into existence. That's awesome. Um, uh, good. Um, and I just googled your name. And up pops all kinds of stuff. <laughs> Am I on? <laughs> yeah, I can hear. You okay? Okay, because I wasn't sure. I was like, oh, um, yeah. Damon, you got all kinds of stuff on here as far as like pictures, uh, small voices, make a public cry, something, uh, telemarks.com. Wow. I didn't know we had a celebrity. Whoa. Mr. Montgomery didn't tell me. No, 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 not at all. all, celeb. He's all being humble now over there and just like, oh, yeah, I did this one piece and this one thing. (laughs) No, I'm just a friendly neighborhood professor. That's all. It's okay to brag a little bit about yourself on here. Now, how long? How long? <laughs> Wait, it what? is. It is. Now, how long have you? Um, how long has Emerge been around? Like, how long? long has that your organization been going? So, so it's been active since 2002. That's when it, it was kind of birthed, and it started out as just a high school kind of club. But as a high school, uh, in our high school, we had so many different students who were a part of just that organization. I mean, just the, the, the club itself, that when they went off to different colleges, I think there was a chapter that was started at Cal State Long Beach. I think there might have even been another one that was started at Emerge, maybe even at UC Berkeley, I mean, excuse me, at Stanford, um, maybe even also at um, UC Berkeley. I, I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but there were a few other chapters that were actually started at um, other universities across California. UC Riverside had a chapter or two as well. Um, and so it's, it's, it's been active and in existence since 2002. We have a history that traces back that long, but in terms of its current iteration right now, um, the nonprofit, uh, that was actually always our goal was to, to, to make it into a nonprofit where we could kind of collect all of our efforts, you know, once we kind of made it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but it's been in existence now uh, since 2015. That was when we hosted our first How to Apply to College workshop mm-hmm. at uh, Bethel uh, Unspeakable Joy uh, Christian Fellowship in, in, in uh, South Los Angeles, California. And and really, the our goal there was just to I'm a college educator. I know counselors. I know people at the UCs. I know folks at the CSUs, some admissions officers, some, some, you know, just people who work in admissions. They have information. I just wanted to be able to create a space and a platform where I could get the community and them in the same space at the same time, and they can just share, share some ideas, share some questions. We ended up spending about maybe two, two and a half hours. We had about maybe... 30 to 35 participants. These are, you know, moms, dads, sisters, brothers, all students are up in the front row. Um, You know, people's aunts and uncles, you know, they were there, they came on out, you know, pastors were there. We had a very large audience and people just held a conversation about how to get into college. Mm -hmm. And that was really where this kind of current iteration of Emerge kind of finds its roots at is in opening lines of access to uh, the community to gain access to college resources. You know, I I mean, I freaking love that because that's the thing, right? Like people of privilege always have that access road, right? Whether they take it or not, it's always there. Like it's in existence. They're going to get it. But too often 
BIPOC communities don't have that access road, don't even have a road to go, right? It's not for lack of desire, it's lack of access. And representation, as we talk about all the time, representation, yeah, representation matters, right? So you, as a black man who's now made it to your position, are, I mean, you're just like, hey, like you said, I, I, this is what I do and I have access and so why wouldn't I connect people to it? Because <laughs> how are we going to get into the door if there's no access, right? And so to me, it's like, that's, right. that's how we do it. We, I mean, for lack of a better term, infiltrate the system, right? Mm-hmm. And get yeah. voices in there to then, like you're saying, because, uh, you know, it's all based on how you write. It's all based on, you know, all these white supremacy characteristics of academia the the only way we're going to change that is to get enough people in there to be like whoa whoa we don't we don't need to do this anymore like this like the evolution right like we don't need to keep doing this and get the same goal like let's flip it over and let's do something different right so i mean that's what you're doing that's that's fucking awesome awesome trying to man we just trying to make a way where we can that's all (laughs) awesome um i wish i had that i wish i had that when i was growing up right man you know the, the the reason why like for me i'm so passionate about this is really because i i honestly so when i became an english major i actually here's Oh my gosh, wait, uh, this is actually going to be out there too. So she's going to hear it. <laughs> so my fourth, seventh, and eighth grade teacher is, is, is still to this day a, a, a beloved mentor of mine. And she is actually the reason why I, be, I, I chose English. Wow. Um, as opposed to something wow. else, right? Um, I, I was originally, I, I came home after, after, <laughs> I'm sorry, a disclaimer, right? I'm a professor and I know my stuff, right? I'm smart and all of that stuff too. But I didn't get this way by by being perfect, you know, and getting all straight A's. Okay, so that's just my disclaimer here. <laughs> no, no expectation. Like we we love vulnerability here at what are you right. bringing to the table? Thank you, because thank you. Vulner- vulnerability <laughs> is the true sign of courage. So that's right. Okay. <laughs> I love that. I we love that. embrace and, vulnerability. And we and we create the space safe to be vulnerable. Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. You definitely you, you definitely have created the space to make me feel safe for sure. So I feel like I can say this with y'all. So like, you know, I mean, I actually I came home one day after failing all of my midterms uh, <laughs> while I was a biological sciences major, right? I, I had to take biology when one quarter I don't know what I was thinking, but I took biology, chemistry, second series calculus, and like a geology class, which was uh, a cross listed with an astronomy. So all math and science courses in one quarter. So oh, not- so basically, let's do it. You set yourself. I did. I did. I did. Up I did. with those classes. I did. I did. I did. Right. See, this is me not knowing. Right. And I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna tie back. And maybe I'm your advisor should have told you something. Right, right. Like that would have been great help if I would have been able to receive that help. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then that would have definitely changed, you know, my, some decisions that I made. But <laughs> I, I wasn't able to receive it from that academic counselor. So I didn't I wasn't able to kind of go inside of academia in order to receive that help. I actually ended up having to rely on my own kind of network. And I, yeah. I really just went to one of my old teachers who hit me up randomly on AIM. 
I'm going to date myself here a little bit. This is when AOL Instant Messenger. (laughs) I was like, for a minute, I was like, aim. Oh, my God. (laughs) Right? Like, Like, I I mean, my students play violins for me all the time whenever I tell that part. Because they're like, oh, my gosh, Professor Chad, that's so old. Like, I'm like, okay, y'all got to relax. It's not that old. (laughs) The little running man graphic. Right. Right. (laughs) So she hit me up randomly on AIM and I just, she asked me, how's your semester going? You know, and I was like, oh boy. So I lay it all on her. I tell her everything that happened and I tell her what I'm thinking about doing. And, you know, she tell, I tell her I'm thinking about, you know, changing my major from bio side to sociology. And she says, hold on, Dame. Wait, sociology and psychology okay, there's a couple of things that I want, those are great majors, but there's a couple of things you need to know about before you actually step in there, okay? This is your decision. But they oftentimes have a, they're an impacted major, so a lot of people want to be sociologists and and, and psychologists, and we need them, right, for sure, uh, throughout the greatest society. But they oftentimes are very difficult. They'll extend your time being there, right, in order just to make it through the the, the major. So you might not have all of your classes available. Hmm. The other thing is that when it comes to black and brown students, Dane, and you one of them, they also, too, carry with it a stigma, Hmm. right? A stigma of it being like the easy kind of major or the major that all the black and brown students end up actually flocking to because they can just get passed right on through. Wow. Now... That's the stereotype or the stigma that they carry. <laughs> that does not translate into the reality because, I mean, let's not forget that W.E.B. Du Bois, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, the first black man to ever receive a Ph.D. from Harvard, mm-hmm. sociologist, mm-hmm. right? So let's let's not let's not <laughs> let's not pretend or like like exercise like a certain kind of willful not knowingness there, right? Let's yeah, and yeah. <laughs> so. Um, sociologists and psychologists that, that, that she, she made me aware of the stigma that was associated with it. So what she ended up telling me as another alternative was, Dane, think about English. There's so much that you could do with it. And I was like, what the heck can you do with the English degree in my head? Right? Like first thing I ever thought of, this is the part I said in my head, I didn't say this out loud. I was like, English. I don't want to be stuck reading books and writing papers for the rest of my life. <laughs> Parties to go to. I'm low key the man right. on campus. I got stuff to do. Wait a minute. Now, I said this in my mind. I'm, I did not. I did not want her to hear that. But you know, I said, "What can you do with an English major?" And she listed off like ten things off the top of my head. You can go into graphic. You can go into to, 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 to graphic design, right? You can come up with concepts for graphic design. You can go into. You can be a lawyer. You could be a, a, a public affairs officer. You can go into. You can work for the Department of Defense. They're specifically looking for English majors. Really? Uh, yeah, they, she started. Yeah, oh my gosh! <laughs> like she, she broke down so many different things to me. I was like, it, it kind of made it impossible for me to tell her no. On top of the fact that she's kind of like my academic mom, right? Like in the <laughs> academic family tree, she's like, mommy, <laughs> she's always taking care of me and always steered me and guided me in the right direction. And for a young black man like myself moving through college, 
that's what that's what at that time right th- that was really the common tale and the common narrative that a lot of us shared mm-hmm. that was a common experience we oftentimes reached back to some of our old pastors some of our old mentors some of our old teachers to help to provide us with guidance for you know like those tough moments and those tough decisions mm-hmm. that we that we ended up having to make you know at crucial times in like our academic journey yeah um yeah I was talking about my, you know, in a couple podcasts ago, I don't remember how many, but I went to a private college. It was mostly white. And I was talking to a friend today because she she brought it up because I was like, you know, none of us. There were six of us that went to this school. None of us went from high school to college. I'm the youngest. I'm the only one that actually went to college. And, you know, and I was telling her, I was like, and I, it got me thinking even more. And I'm like, you know, they probably didn't approach me because, like you, I didn't have good grades, you know. And uh, But I thought it was a failure on my part until I started thinking about the educational level of my parents. My dad, sixth grade. My mother from Mexico, second grade. And I'm getting tons of homework from school. But again, I thought it was about me because the other kids are bringing in their homework, not recognizing, well, they got parents that graduated from high school and, you know, that are sitting at the table with their kid doing the homework. And, you know, and here I'm thinking it's about me failing because I'm not smart enough or maybe I don't want it enough or something so inside of me it was more of a failure that you're not smart and it wasn't until you know finally i i actually moved up to portland and and was getting these jobs that oh yeah no you need this you know this thing or we're not going to give you this because you need this type of qualification that i just said screw it i'm just going to go but I, again, I had to navigate my way through the system because I didn't, you know, I was just like, okay, and just asking people. But I, I just, I mean, I'm like appalled at how uh, just, that, that's why I'm so excited about like you guys going to community, having these meetings about how, how can we get kids into, into school, further education, is in the teen communities, our focus is on work. It's not on going off to be of Latino communities. There are people that move further into, the, you know, that are great students that are Latino. You know, and they go on into higher ed right after. But in, you know, I'm and I'm looking within my family circle, and it's like very few comparatively move on to well, one that they finish high school, yeah. two that they move on to higher ed three that they're getting master's degrees or a doctorate degrees like as you get higher in education they become less and less with students of color and i'm like something's got to change something's got to change no that's so true i mean you know there, there was a there was a uh, some kind of, I can't remember what the statistic is off the top of my head right now, but there's some kind of very small percentage of black and brown folks who actually have their PhD or who are at the doctorate level, you know, JD, ND, you know, uh, uh, PhD, so on and so forth, 
Like there, there, there is very, very few. And you know, I, I, I love one of the staples of, of, of this show here, right? You know, what you bring to the table. It's it's you know representation matters right and I don't I don't know well clearly y'all know exactly how powerful that is because y'all came up with it and, and that's a that's a firm foundational part of the show you know representation matters primarily for this reason right here that you just explained Sylvia you don't see that many black and brown PhDs right or folks who are at that doctorate level as you the higher you go the less and less people of color you begin to actually see up there in those upper echelons. And that gets us to a very important kind of observation point, right, about power. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to, and, 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 and part of your example actually illustrated this, right, and in, in when you said, you know, you moved up to Portland, Oregon, right, and you, you know, applied to jobs, and they said, well, no, heck, you need this, 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 and this, and this. Well, jobs require, right, certain degrees, and if you don't have that degree, then you therefore don't gain access, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the the idea of of representation mattering, right? It matters at the specifically in academia. If if for no other place, it definitely matters in the corporate sphere. It matters in 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 the public sphere. It matters in all of those other spheres. But at the very least, at least it matters in education and academia, primarily because. That is one of the gateways that people end up having to go through, right, in order to gain access to those 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 positions that are in kind of the upper echelons of power, right? Yeah, the, the administrative position. Yeah, and I, um, it's funny because we were just talking about this today at work, um, and I was saying how the the people in academia, what do they do? They create the majority the the research which Mm -hmm. then informs the quote-unquote evidence-based practices, which develops the model that we're going to go out into our systems, whether it's school, mental health, health care, all of our care systems, all our systems of care, pull from academia. And if academia at those levels, PhD, because that's who's doing the research, if and then that's who's teaching the courses, if those people remain as white as they are, we will continue to graduate Amy Coopers that go out into the world and then working with uh, populations who are historically marginalized and they will not be able to do that work with those communities. So we talk yeah. about that evolution. I mean, I think absolutely academia is one of those places because like you're saying, it touches everything, right? Everything in systems, it's all, I mean, both of you and I have a history of working in systems, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and everything is, well, is it evidence-based practice? Is it evidence-based pra- Well, yeah, but this practice you've never done on communities of color, so how do you know it fucking works, right? <laughs> and so I think there's that piece of how do we teach people to get into this arena and, and because the job requires it, but also in some of these jobs, are we looking at life experience, right? I got a friend who, who says she got a PhD, past history, past history degree, because she isn't, you know, doesn't have a bachelor's, but she works with you. She works in a youth uh, service, uh, peer service community um, providing agency. And so part of that representation is what you've lived in your life that matters as well right so how again the evolution like you brought it up how do we evolve this system not to just create people that can get jobs but how do we 
also create it so people who have experience in certain areas can still get into the the jobs that they're like you know with sylvia like she finally you were like oh fuck it i'm gonna have to go to school right what would it have looked like for them to take into consideration your experience as a form of education right oh yeah yeah heck yeah i mean experience as credit right experience as credit is essentially the the um like the framework you know uh at least that we use in academia you know when we're talking about like you know kind of you know, hirings and things like that and the language that we use, ex- experience needs to be counted and needs to be given credit. Yeah, yeah. It definitely needs right. to be, you know. Well, and, and I think the other thing that the message is, uh, that the message is that, um, you know, the, the higher you go, the more credentials you have, the more quote unquote expert you are. Or the more smart you are and the fact that young people are looking into or the outside of their world and they're seeing say one barack obama fabulous in i mean intellectually there you got michelle obama same thing intellectually spot on and then you have the buffoon that is currently in our uh white house there who is less than mediocre yeah i don't know if you can get worse than mediocre and you look at that and you're like i either have to be fabulous and smart like obama because i will never reach what obama did being as freaking mediocre as that fool is right now and be able to reach that the top echelons so Oh, and how many uh, how many Michael Jordans out there for me? I'm no Michael Jordan. I am no Michelle Obama. So to me, I'm a young person. I'd be like, "Ah, I'm just going to be satisfied with graduating from high school. And because I could never do do that. Those are for smart people. You know, the messaging, the messaging, the mind screws that these this educational system just plays with young folks, young kids of color, I'm going to say. No, for sure. Uh, you you're hitting it right on the head, Sylvia. Like, I mean, so this is this is kind of where I come in at, kind of on on the on the topic of you know where do we go from here, or like you know kind of what's our next step, um, you know after the protests, after you know the looting and the and the and the burning and all of this stuff here, you know, kind of happens, right? Um, when it comes to education, we have to create a brand new paradigm Mm -hmm. (laughs) i don't really know quite a better way to describe it other than we need a new paradigm of education and 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 so let me explain to you kind of why and i want to kind of touch back on some of the points that you were making to sylvia about in terms of what your experience was like you know kind of moving through you know courses and classes so the current way that like our educational system is actually structured it's it's set up and structured right as a kind of uh assembly model factory for workers right for a labor force right Mm -hmm. the problem with that is that was a model that was actually constructed popular and viable for a completely different era Mm -hmm. right so this is this is this is still kind of you know getting back to to the, the idea about like you know revolution versus evolution too in a certain kind of way. 
So this era, right, was like the 1920s, 19, the early 19 teens. And the, the way that people live life back then was completely different. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, the way that we live life today is completely different from the way that we lived life six months ago. <laughs> right. But I mean, it was even more of an extreme gap, you know? Um, so the way that teaching actually functioned back then, right. And this here is completely firm firmly like situated within the era of segregation. Uh, so, you know, you have white schools, right. Which look a certain type of way and they have certain access to certain equipment and the quality and the standard of the education and the space that they were in is a certain type of way. And then you have black schools too, as well. Now, <clears throat> At this time, right, you actually have a lot of universities and things like that, or, or this is just after the era where you had a lot of HBCUs, mm-hmm. right, coming onto the scene, mm-hmm. specifically as to fill in that gap, right, and to respond to the question of, right, for black folks, right, okay, just after Reconstruction, where do we go from here, right, or what is the best path toward for black folks to achieve liberation, mm-hmm. right? Like that was kind of like a central question that 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 the kind of intelligentsia of the time were exploring, right? Mm-hmm. So Du Bois, Booker T. Washington, Ida B. Wells, so on and so forth, those folks. But so as a response, you have HBCUs, right? Which is, is, is a kind of institutional response from education, right? To fill in that gap, to say, okay, hey, here's where, where y'all can go, okay, black folks, right? We know that y'all got a lot of, uh, uh, experience credit, right? We, we know y'all got a lot of experience credit when it comes to sharecropping, right? You know, carpentry, right? You know, working with your hands, right? Being in the field, so on and so forth. They actually begin to tap into some of those those institutions like Tuskegee, right? Like uh, 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 North Carolina A and T, right? Those kind of technical institutions were were were, were hotbeds for teaching uh, uh, really the entire country how to farm, how to grow crops, mm. and, and how to do it in, in sustainable mm. ways, right? Like, mm. they were hotbeds for those kind of spaces. Mm. And what's amazing about that is uh, th- this, this Italian theorist um, has a name for, 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 like, those people with experience credit, right? Um, he, he, he calls them organic intellectuals, right? Organic intellectuals. Organic intellectuals are people who are just, like, naturally curious, Right? They make connections with the world, but they don't have any formal kind of education. Mm. These are the people who are self-taught, right? Self-starters, you know, self-initiated, right? They get going on their own. They're, they're, they, 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 I mean, if some of them are lucky enough to have boots, mm-hmm. then they might pull themselves up out of bootstraps. Mm. Mm-hmm. If they don't have boots, then they'll figure out a way to actually make something, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and from that ingenuity, right, comes innovation, comes right benefits for the world public benefits right public goods mm-hmm. right so this here is so 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 in a very real kind of way right the very notion of what it means like those kind of th- those experiences that you're that you're that, that that you were describing earlier about you know having the experience sylvia you know and 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 and, and the question tori that you were asking about you know can is there a way that you know we can we, we, we need to be able to kind of account for in our new kind of evolutionary thinking about jobs and employment, we need to be able to account for a way to give folks with some experience credit, right? These organic intellectuals mm-hmm. at the job, we need to be able to actually give them, mm-hmm. we need to come up with a criteria and a platform, a, a pathway to get them some access and some entry 
into those upper level management positions, yeah. into you know the mid the the, the the mid level worker positions, right? Into the entry level positions, right? I mean, like we need we need it all. Yeah, we need it all. That's the evolutionary. That's the evolutionary part, right? That's the new paradigm shift, right? It's it's no longer either or. We cannot afford either or dichotomies or thinking any longer. Like the 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 the, the, the very the very notion upon which we kind of um, conceptualize uh, 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 like what it means right to to exist. Mm-hmm. We we're used to philosophically we're used to having these conversations in terms of like you know what goes on up here in your noggin right in your brain mm-hmm. right. So this speaks to the point earlier, Tori, I believe that you made, right, about like how, you know, like like folks who are intelligent. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry, Sylvia, you actually made the point that, right, the higher that you actually go, right, the, the more intelligent, right, it, you know, one kind of assumes, mm-hmm. right, that, 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 that folks will be, you know, as they move up. But that's not necessarily the case, right? Mm-hmm. That's definitely not the case, primarily because those folks who just stick within the ivory tower, as we call mm-hmm. it, right, mm-hmm. they don't necessarily have the 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 same kind or an effective use of personal experience interpersonal relationships and interpersonal experiences Mm -hmm. beyond the realm and the walls of academia right they don't have any what we call like real world experience right yeah so you know if we can't chop it up you know then (laughs) and, and 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 i'm supposed to work with you then you know how can we work well and effectively you know how can we gel you know how can we get this machine here going you know to its fullest capacity if you and me can't actually you know work and work work well together and relate (laughs) yeah no i mean i think that that's um and kind of what came to my head as you were talking about that was um really the future and all of this is non-binary right because we always want to keep it in the this or that right and um i think that's part of the evolution of all of this is that you know there is a spectrum in everything, right? And so we have to, it's making space, right? And so that, that white fear is like, you're going to take everything from me and make me the oppressed and you guys are going to, no, what we're saying is we want to make space for everything. We want to be inclusive, right? And um, I think that's that fear that we're fighting against is is they don't, they don't understand that. And to speak to the intelligence thing is, again, having this conversation with a friend today is just because you reach that higher level education, PhD on all those levels, it doesn't necessarily mean you've learned the critical thinking skills or that are necessary to build relationship. Right. Um, and I think that's, you know, that in lies part of the problem is that you have this like situation where that academia world is teaching others to do things that they to only know how to do because you yeah. you don't have any kind of diversity in your teaching styles in in the way you deliver the teaching the way you expect the, the student to learn you know i mean academia is still very rigid in it's you know we are writing this paper and you're doing this project you know i always said if i ever became a professor i would be like show me how you know what we're learning here in any way, shape, or form. Whether you want to write a freaking five-page APA letter or a paper, cool. You want to do a video, you want to do a podcast. Like, my my thinking is, tell me that I'm helping you learn what we're supposed to learn here, you know? And But that's very non-binary thinking, right? And academia is still in that you do this or you do that. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, that's, that's, but then again, right now, 
what's required, you know, in order to, um, in order to, to, to embrace, because I, I think that part of the, the, the joy in what you're, in what you're describing, I, I find joy in like, in, in, in these kind of, in these spaces and in these moments, you know, it's like any little kind of kernel of, of, of light that I can actually kind of get, you know, it, it's, it's, it's something that I cherish. The, the, what's required in order to really get the full purchase or the full promise of that joy is a new paradigm or a new way of mm-hmm. thinking. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, yeah. and, 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 and another way to kind of say that is like just for, for, for folks who are listening and not necessarily like viewing, right? Like what I mean when I say a new paradigm shift, let's imagine for a second um, that so, so, so I live in California, right? Born and raised in LA all my life. So like sunglasses are not really just a fashion statement mm-hmm. for us. It's, it's actually like, it's, it's, it, it serves a practical functionality. Like the sun literally shines yeah. too bright when you're driving around out here. You mess Okay, wait, Damon. Damon, there's no need to brag about that. <laughs> you're talking to people in the Northwest who just barely started seeing the sun in the last couple of days. And oh, it's a, and it was a little cloudy today. So. Oh, don't even get me started on my time in Portland, Oregon. And uh, y'all got something up there that 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 will give Cali a run for their money now. Okay, look, I have some amazing. Sun ain't it though. Sun ain't it. We have beautiful green, lush grounds yes. and forests. Yes. All, all the all, things all that the... rain provides. Oh man, y'all are. Because of the rain, though. You know, I felt like I'm gonna. Portland for a conference for like a few days and I felt like I was in my second home. I was like, yeah, this is, yeah. This is- Don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. No way, you can come. She took you off track. You were talking about so sunglasses anyway. and Kelly. Sunglasses oh. and your so- son. <laughs> so, so in terms of like a new paradigm shift, right? It's kind of like it's kind of like this, right? I, I think about it in these terms. So, sunglasses are actually like they serve a very practical use, right? They have a very practical use value to them. They actually help you to en- they enable you to see more clearly when in times where it's very difficult but very bright to see out outdoors, right? <clears throat> okay, so. The kind of paradigm shift that we're talking about here is going to require a brand new set of lenses, right? I'm talking about, like, when I say a paradigm shift, I mean, okay, I'm going to have to take these reading glasses off here and go get my C&I glasses right mm-hmm. quick. I'm going to have to take my, my, my very cute, reflective, <laughs> light blue shades off, right, that don't never really black out the sun and go get my blue blockers right quick, Right. Like this is the kind of this is what I mean when I say a paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. We're talking about uh, uh, changing the lenses through which we view not just ourselves, right? Because it always right the the the, the hard work starts with the hard work, right? It, it it always starts inside, mm-hmm. right? First, that's where the transformation has to start and begin. It has to occur here, mm-hmm. so that we actually have a testimony to tell. Why? Because human beings aren't wired necessarily for competition. This is the, the mm-hmm. paradigm shift, right? Mm-hmm. Like human beings are actually wired, right? Like there's, like if you ever like had your, I'm a righty, right? So like if you ever broke your right wrist or something like that and had to learn how to write with your left, 
your brain is able to actually transfer those that information on over through a thing called mirror neurons, mm-hmm. right? Human beings actually see mm-hmm. pain that others are going through mm-hmm. and we experience and take on that pain just quite simply from visualizing it, right? From watching it, mm-hmm. from, from hearing it. That's why last week and the past couple of weeks since May 26 was so tough and heavy for the entire world. Yeah. You got to see that man, George Floyd, mm-hmm. lay it out like that for eight minutes. Mm-hmm. But right, the paradigm shift comes into view a little bit more clearly into view when we begin to think about where people are coming from as just quite simply another set of lenses that mm-hmm. they put on, right? And that they wear and that they leave out of the house with. Mm-hmm. They have those lenses on for much longer periods of time than what people who are brand new into the conversation, right? People who are just now walking into an awareness about the tragedy and the suffering that still exists, right? Not just in black America, but across America mm-hmm. today, mm-hmm. just from witnessing George Floyd's death, right? That's what I mean when I say that we're talking about a paradigm shift here and what's required is a paradigm shift. We gotta actually sometimes say, Tori, you know what? Hey, I don't have those lenses right there. Can I borrow yours mm-hmm. right quick? Let me see yours right quick. Cause you know what? They are, man, shoot, you know, those might be a little bit too strong. I might not be able to, or dang, you know what? Those might not be strong enough. I might need the Sylvia. Can I use mm-hmm. your lenses right quick? Can I learn mm-hmm. from you? Can I sit down with you and talk with you about where it is that you come yeah. from and how it that you arrive here at this point? Can I learn a little bit about your history? Can you share your personal experiences with me mm-hmm. and your story mm-hmm. with me, your testimony? So that way I can see through a different set of lenses. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the paradigm shift. We have to get yeah. in touch and tap in with other people's stories. <sighs> Man. Uh, yeah. And that's where we were talking when, you know, when I brought up, I'm like, I'm not sure whether people are nervous. I I mean, I don't know, because I talked about, you know, whenever I have, uh, whenever I get into a relationship, a friendship, you know, with Mm -hmm. white until... You know, I kind of realized it, but this just brought it even more to the forefront to me, was I get into these relationships very hesitant. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, as opposed to uh, my, you know, friends that are of color. Like, I'm like, oh, girl, what you doing? You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I am just like soul sister right here. You know, ooh, I just this, you know, this love. Why don't I can feel me? I can be me. Um, but when it comes to white people you know again it's uh i've learned one how to maneuver in in that world but also this this hesitance of not you know being able to be my real me my full self me because of the experiences that i had where inevitably somebody's going to say something that i am going to have to respond to and it's typically around something racial and and then it's like well then i'm left with i gave all this energy all of this now you know i have to let it go and i gotta look like i either they're looking at me like i'm their token friend you know they're uh you must be one of the good ones (laughs) you know and 
just, you know, and I, I left so many of these types of relationships that it's like, you know, I'm, I, I'm going to wait. I'm just going to wait to see what you all do. I'll give you a little just to be polite, but I'm away. I'm away, you know, and I'm like, it, it's not I, I don't. It's the self-preservation, yeah. I guess. It's my self-preservation because yeah. I'm tired of having to say the same dang thing. The same. And I can have conversations with my family if they say something racist. If they, I can get in the mix and I'll be like, oh, yeah, the, the, you know, chop it up. But when mm-hmm. it comes to somebody, ugh, somebody who is white that I, it's just like, it's talking to a bird because they cannot relate. And I don't know if it's because I'm not saying it right, but I just feel like they can't relate to what I'm saying. Yeah, that that's a go that's ahead, a professor. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, that's a real struggle. I, I struggle with that too. I'm, I'm, shoot. <laughs> see, 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 like, 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 like. This is this here is kind of one of those moments, right? Where, because you know, I mean, I grew up in L.A. Like I said, you know, and L.A. has always been like, you know, as as far as my life, it's always been, you know, a very uh, kind of mixed mixed place, black and brown. You know, so like this is kind of one of those moments where it's like, dang, man, see, this is right. You know, you might kind of like let your hair down off of one, on, on, on a moment like that. Right. You know, you might be like, Ooh, girl, let me tell you. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, but, yeah. but to your, to your point though, like that, that, that really is, <laughs> that really is a, 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 a question. And, and, um, um, that's something that, that, that I think people of color walk around with, um, consciously and unconsciously at all times you know um it's 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 an extra added awareness about so it it probably it it probably works okay i'm sorry i'm I'm gonna put my professor hat on just for a quick second right now because um because it's necessary (laughs) i think this kind of helps there was the sociologist that I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, W.B. Du Bois, right? He was actually really an amazing uh, scholar. Um, he wrote in the early 19... Actually, kind of right around the same time uh, that we were kind of canvassing earlier, like the early 1900s, around 1918, 1915, something like somewhere around then. He wrote a book called The Souls of Black Folks. And in that book, he actually writes about a, a, a concept. He actually introduces... A problem that I've actually been 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 hearing recycled on, you know, kind of news news cycle after news cycle now, which is, you know, he, he, here he introduces this the concept of race as the biggest problem of the 20th century, right? The problem of the color line. Mm-hmm. He says he argues that the biggest problem in America is the problem of the color line. This supersedes all other problems socially, politically, and economically because it undergirds it. It is the root central cause of the other symptoms that we actually see that pervade throughout the American landscape. And mind you, he's writing this at the turn of the century, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we understand that there's a recession that's, mm-hmm. that's and, and mm-hmm. like this kind of like, you know, during the age of robber barons and things like mm-hmm. that, right? And, you know, the, the gap between the rich and the wealthy is, mm-hmm. is, is highly prevalent at this time. But that also, too part of his analysis, the sociological analysis, reveals that you cannot separate an analysis of class or capitalism from race. Mm-hmm. That actually they're tied 
to separate, to undo one, you would have to undo the other, Mm -hmm. right? And so you hear a lot of that language being utilized now Mm -hmm. by some in popular news media, but especially by a lot of folks who are at the grassroots level, Mm -hmm. right? A part of the different, you know, kind of rallying groups, right? Black Lives Matter, so on and so forth. That's a part of the language of evolutionary of, of, of evolution, right? This is like a critique that actually comes from from that has its roots in in, in folks like Du Bois, mm-hmm. right? So Du Bois is writing this in 1918, like in the early 1900s, but because he's black and he's in academia, and they're mm-hmm. right, right? So mm-hmm. is like that many right in there, especially at that time, <laughs> right? Like he doesn't get the recognition or the the kind of legacy towards his thinking as a Sir Isaac Newton mm-hmm. or as a, a, um, a, um, a Sigmund Freud, right? But he's made probably just as big of an impact in the conversation and the ways that we should think about race, right? And offering us new platforms and new um, kind of maps and words to think through race and have dialogues about race on that could get us beyond the color line, right? He, he's done just as much work and has made just as much of an impact doing that. And I'll tell you just this last thing. This is the concept that he introduced, double consciousness. So the problem, right, that's, that Sylvia was actually referring to earlier about, you know, this kind of hyper-awareness that, 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 that she and so many other people of color, myself, right, my mentors and all of us, right, that, 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 we've, that we talk about and that we, that we think about is what Du Bois calls double consciousness, right? He's, he's, he's identifying as a sociologist, right, the kind of mindset, right, that, 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 it, that is required, right, or that, 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 that emerges, right, from the souls of black folks. Because mm. that's what he's studying. Mm-hmm. He's a sociologist. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to get at the root of what lies at the heart of the souls of black folks. Mm-hmm. Really, he's trying to flesh it out. He's, I mean, you know, part of the, the marketing behind his book is, you know, even in the title itself, right, is that. But really what he offers us is so much more rich than that. It's a full-scale examination of what the environment, of both the, the, the direct uh, uh, the immediate direct environment that black folks actually live within and circulate throughout and about looks like feels like sounds like tastes like smells like right and how it functions toward their goal of liberation Mm -hmm. or not Mm. right Du Bois is writing this way back in the day Mm. and this notion of double consciousness is what he is is oftentimes really well known for and remembered for among a, a great number of a great many other things because it it's it's it explains the two ways Right, that people of color, but especially black folks, right? It explains the two ways that black folks grow up, right, or birth into this world looking at themselves through, right? So off the top, he's highlighting a problem that lies at the heart of what it is that America promises for black folks, but is unable to deliver. Mm. That's the promise of liberty, justice, freedom, and equality, right? So on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Because of America's inability to live up to this promise right here, right? Because it's declined from this promise, it's now, right, open to the wrath of racism Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it's gone unchecked. And that's actually the central problem, right? The logic, and and, and by racism, racism is the effect, 
right? It's the actions, the tangible actions, mm-hmm. right? Uh, uh, um, uh, of of specific kind of logic, and that logic I always work to identify as white supremacy. Mm-hmm. So when I talk about white supremacy, I'm talking about a structuring logic or Okay, here now I'm gonna actually take my academic hat off, right, and just kind of put back on like my regular kind of neighborhood uh, hat. <laughs> back to the lenses that I that I was talking about, right? So yeah. another way to think about logic, right, is just through the lenses. Why? Because mm-hmm. logic actually determines the way that an individual sees and talks about the world that they that they see. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's it's a lens. Mm-hmm. It's a lens. White supremacy is a lens that individuals at in, in, in institution in positions of institutional power and authority. Not just now, but for a very long period of time, right? Have always chosen to put on whenever the conversation about who do we give access to which resources and who do we not give access to which resources comes up. They put on the, the, the you know, you ever see like the, the image of the, of the like the dude from I'm thinking about like the what Happy Feet, right? So you're like 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 Happy Feet, yeah. right? The old penguin dude, right? He's, <laughs> he's got like the glasses on. His, yeah. Oh, <laughs> right. They start looking over documents, right? They put those lenses on, and that's exactly how they begin now to make the decisions to distinguish between who is worth living and who is not. Yeah, yeah. You know, you said something earlier that kind yeah. of brought a question to my mind around um, the undoing, uh, the the ra- if you undo racism, if I heard you correctly, please mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, Professor, because, you know... <laughs> I like I like being in school here. <laughs> um, is is if you undo racism, you essentially undo capitalism, right? Because who's been making money on black bodies, right? Since the beginning, right? And so that to me fears that fuels that fear of the ultra wealthy because who is the ultra wealthy? Majority white, right? You got to sprinkle here and there, but we all know what they look like. Um. So I, you know, just kind of thinking of that and that evolution is that that is a huge fear. That's a huge fear in a society that is is you know, West the Western society of materialism, capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, I gotta get mine. You know that to 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 have it a potentially being taken away. Well, I can. I mean, I just can imagine. I just only can imagine that fear. And when you when you connect that, when you add that fear to the wealth that they have, oh, that's kind of scary. It is. It is very much so. I'm not even going to lie. I'm not even going to lie, right? I mean, sheesh, that is scary. Um, but, you know, seeing George Floyd lay out for eight minutes and 46 seconds, that was kind of scary, too. Oh, no, no. I'm Yeah, yeah. I'm saying I think it's scary to them. Like, I think that it's a scary for them that they are like, that's why they they just lose their, they've lost their mind in some sense. No, I got you. I know exactly what you're saying. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm going to pick up, I'm I'm trying to pick up something that that you're hitting on right here, right? Mm -hmm. Because, right, because, because there's a, there's a fundamental problem with the question that you asked, right, is really the, the, the juncture at which historically, right, from the end of slavery to reconstruction, mm-hmm. right? 
to I don't know if y'all ever seen right that I think you y'all have actually seen it because I want to say I remember y- y- y'all y'all uh, referring to like the timeline. Yeah, I think we posted it on our, our our page too. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? So 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 let's think that timeline, right? Mm-hmm. Let's think that timeline. Each one of those points right there, right, are how many times we've actually arrived at this decision, right? The the so there's there's the end of slavery, right? There's Reconstruction, right? Then there's the end of Jim Crow, which is like a hundred years later. Right. And then there's like now. Right. So you have one, two, three times. Right. Where we've actually the nation. When I say we, I mean, the nation have have revisited this conversation Mm -hmm. where, okay, hey, black folks, we see you. We hear you. Dang, that's messed up. Right. See, this is is why I said I'm just trying to I'm trying to pick up some some of what Mm -hmm. you're saying. Right. Not Mm -hmm. not that you were saying this, but this is the sentiments of the nation. Yeah. Right. We, we know that. Right. It felt really bad. Right. For those eight minutes and 46 seconds. That was scary. The nation was scared. Mm-hmm. Right. The nation was completely horrified by the in those eight minutes and 46 seconds watching that officer sit on that man's neck. Mm-hmm. Right. That fear in that moment, though, there was what. This is actually something that Obama did rhetorically, and it was a very fascinating move. A, a professor by the name of Ursula Orr actually um, wrote a, uh, an essay on this. It was a fascinating uh, piece, and and I, I can't remember what the name of the ex- of the essay was actually called, but it was a a, a piece on um, the rhetorical maneuverability of Obama. And in it, she's talking about how Obama, in in at the time where he like the, the first time where he had to really address race, right? Like he had to really address the killings of Michael Brown, so on and so forth, right? And the persistence of racist, uh, racial, racist state violence and, and police brutality. In order to bring the nation together, right? Relatively speaking, he had to initiate a kind of uh, disbelief. He had to get the nation to to engage in a suspension of disbelief. And he also had to get black folks to engage in a suspension of disbelief, right? And in that suspension, there is opportunity, right? That suspension kind of, right? And and like, if you think of a conveyor belt, right? If you you kind of pull a conveyor belt right for a second, throws the whole machine off, Mm -hmm. right? You you might even kind of hurt your hand, but if you got, you know, something to actually kind of throw a wrench in there, right? It'll throw everything kind of off and it'll suspend it, and then you create a vulnerability in the quote-unquote system, mm-hmm. right, which creates a momentary pause of opportunity. Mm. In that speech, Obama was able to do it, right, but in that, in that, at the end of that video, right, at the, at the end of George Floyd's death, George Floyd's death was also, too, able to create and, and, and have an impact on white folks, mm-hmm. right, who, let's say that they were actually not even that they were not allies, mm-hmm. right? That they were not choir members, right? Mm-hmm. So we're not talking about those white folks, right? We're talking about white folks mm-hmm. who were completely oblivious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about white folks who were resistant, mm. right? Mm-hmm. You also got the defiant ones, but this ain't that, this ain't, we ain't got, we ain't got time for them right now. Not right now. This is not their time right now, right? But, for the ones who are resistant, those are the ones who 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 I like to kind of identify or or, or or kind of um, like those are my those are my colleagues. Those are my those are my people who I went to. I grew up and went to school. Those are my teachers. Those mm-hmm. are my the people who you know like 
slip me like a dollar when I was in, you know, in McDonald's, you know what I'm saying? And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm up there embarrassed, you know, and I, I'm like, man, I'm like 50 cents short and they'd like slip me a dollar or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. these are the people who are also too, right? Like, wow, where did you get that name? And hey, you speak so well, right? Like, I mean, these are, these are folks who participate in what I like, in, in, in what is called colorblind racism, right? Or a kind of colorblindness, right? Mm-hmm. These are the folks who are oblivious, right? They don't see race, mm-hmm. right? So this, um, I, I, we can still stick with like the lens metaphor, but, but I just wanted to kind of just put that back up there, right? When you're talking about colorblindness, that's a, those are a set of lenses that are rosy colored, mm. right? They're rose colored lenses mm-hmm. and they completely paint a rosy picture of every single thing that everybody sees until they saw for eight minutes and 40 seconds, black death and suffering at the hands of a white police officer mm-hmm. at the hands of somebody who they actually thought was there to protect and serve mm-hmm. everybody. Mm-hmm. Right. So that kind of moment of suspension of, of disbelief creates a kind of vulnerability that allows for a human connection. Those mirror neurons had to have been firing mm-hmm. right then and there in those moments, mm-hmm. you know, right? Like there was a kind of like empathy at least, mm-hmm. you know, at the very least that was able to get triggered from that point. And as a result, right, like in, 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 there, was a, there, was, there, was, there was heartfeltness. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Groundhog's Day. Mm. Nobody wants to be Bill Murray in Groundhog's Day, right? Bill Murray didn't want to be Bill Murray in Groundhog's Mm -hmm. Day, right? But we've been here before. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to that timeline. Them other three Mm -hmm. points that were right here, right? So this was that moment. Okay, now we got a new moment, right? That's on that timeline. Boom, right? And I'm not trying to trivialize this. Please, I I, I don't want anybody to actually mistake me here, but there's a lot of synthesis that's happening Mm -hmm. here. And that timeline is important for us to actually consider because at every single one of those points in that timeline where we begin to see a new shift in the, in the color when it got to in when it came to the policymakers when they got to having the conversation about economics mm. about creating pathways mm. for black folks right to achieve liberation right the kind that we have been knowing since slavery mm-hmm. is the kind that they kind of sort of need in mm-hmm. order to in order for us to actually fulfill the promise right of of american democracy liberty mm-hmm. justice freedom for all right in order for us to live up to our promise as a nation we've been knowing what it is that we have to do but right then and there when we get to that part of the conversation mm. yeah uh, yeah guys jeez yeah. uh, it, it turned into that uh, uh, uh. and and for me what <laughs> no, what it turned into it and it and it then it turns into the oh wait look at this over here oh wait look at this over here oh look at this over here like now it's like I mean right. and COVID still exists but now well, now we're flipping at the riot. yeah you you don't want to you don't want to show that when the when the protesters became peaceful and stopped looting then mm-hmm. the fucking news cycle switched and so now we're back at COVID right in the yeah. hopes I think like you're saying Groundhog Day they'll. People forget it. People will get and like the, the people that you're speaking of that were oblivious. And man, when you talked about like people in your life and people that had helped you, whoo, man, that gave me chills because that's my experience, right? Again, I grew up in a white community. I grew up with my white family, and the 
obliviously obliviousness of them mm-hmm. it's like like wow you know um so yeah so i i it it just this 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 need to switch the the topic so that we lose momentum almost right like that's a tactic too right Let yeah me- absolutely that's called deception or yeah. deflection right yeah so like my my um so it's it's so funny because I, I mentioned my dad earlier right like he was very sh- kind of strict growing up but he was heavily influenced through Malcolm X and so like I I kind of what we're hearing like the speeches I don't know about your 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 YouTube feeds but <laughs> my YouTube feeds are popping with James Baldwin speeches <laughs> and Malcolm X speeches stuff that I haven't seen YouTube. <laughs> I don't know. You two had all of these. <laughs> That's right. How about how about the uh, did you how about yeah. the Netflix? Have you seen the Netflix and the Hulu? <laughs> the Netflix and Hulu. Yeah, I'm like, man, they have all these documentaries. What? <laughs> so sorry, I had to jump in there with those ones. Yeah, go, go ahead. That's cool. No, 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 no. That's perfectly fine. So like, you know, I'm sitting up here. I'm like, wow. You know, that's crazy. But like the, the idea, like so my all of these things that are popping up kind of now, right? Especially specifically with the speeches, like specifically Malcolm X speeches. Mm -hmm. um, Those are speeches that I actually grew up listening to, you know, just like in a car ride with my dad, Mm -hmm. because, because he had, you know, ballad or bullet on like a CD and, you know, (laughs) what are we going to listen to on a brand new CD player in the, in the, in the Brady Bunch mobile that we just got the new station wagon. We're going to listen to ballad or bullet (laughs) for fun. And then, and then Miles Davis right after (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, if I if I if um if um if I'm if I ask you know the right questions or if I don't ask too many questions, then we could throw on a tribe call quest after that. You know, maybe some Ice Cube. Like I was just literally like, you know, my dad. That's the that's the that's the those are the that's the process of riding in the car with my dad. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but like those 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 speeches from Malcolm X and Ballard or Bullet and and. And, um, you know, even, you know, Kings, you know, like, like why we can't wait, you know, a lot of those speeches there kind of really highlight the importance of this kind of new kind of evolutionary thinking, right? This, 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 this kind of where do we go from here kind of thinking. And what lies at the heart of it is a, a, a certain kind of recognition of, uh, it's what, it's what Cornel West calls tragic comic hope. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, tragic comic hope refers to the ability to be able to look at the tragedy of a situation. Right. The, the 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 destitution of a situation. Right. Seeing that all hope is lost, but still retaining a smile. Mm. Still mm-hmm. having the ability. Right. And it's an ability. Mm-hmm. It's like Cornel West is very uh, precise and very in, intent on on labeling it as an ability. Talking mm-hmm. about tragic comic hope because mm-hmm. it's not just some something that's just floating off in the ether right it's not hokey hope that he's referring to mm-hmm. this is a practice right mm. that actually has its roots right within the blues tradition mm. right comes out of the blues mm-hmm. tradition and we hear it right like every single time we listen to a, a, a robert johnson song right you know or or every time we listen to like you know bessie smith mm-hmm. or you know or or or, or billy holiday right mm-hmm. it's it's somehow right this situation looks so bleak dastard and destitute that I am able to draw on something. I don't mm. know why it is that I still save the man who actually killed my brother, but I'm able to do it. And you know what? 
Mm. I feel better because of it, right? Mm -hmm. Again, Cornel West is very, very strategic and very intentional in terms of not labeling this as hokiness, right? Mm -hmm. We're not talking about the blind side here. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about freedom (laughs) riders. We're not talking about dangerous minds. We're not talking about, you know, oh, these are some good, you know, black folks right here. We're not talking about these folks. We're talking about the folks who will cuss you out and also go to church right after, ask Jesus for forgiveness and be out there at the march on Saturday. <laughs> right? Like like there's a certain kind of tragic mm-hmm. comic hope. Right? Like think about what kind of not just mindset, but what kind of courage it is actually required, right? Like like I mean, in order for people to kind of engage in the kind of paradigm shift that we're that we're talking about here. And in order for folks to look at that George Floyd clip for eight minutes and 46 seconds, right, and, 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 to, and to be so moved as to get out into the streets and to protest, right, mm. there's a certain kind of fervor, right, that comes from that. And I, and I want to say that there is a certain kind of, that, that comes from a certain kind of courage, too, as well, right? But that courage is the minimum requirement, mm-hmm. the minimum requirement that it now takes in order for us to fully engage in the process of picking up these new sunglasses so that we can put them on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It takes courage to change your sunglasses. It takes a lot of courage. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it takes vulnerability, right? Absolutely. And that's what I think a lot of white folks are having their experience around being vulnerable enough to say, yeah, I didn't know. I'm sorry I'm late to the party. I fucked up. I've done this. I've done that. I think it takes all non-black folks to do that, right? We talked about that in one of our episodes. We did an article about how to be an ally, and the original title was, you know, how to be a white ally, but we prefaced it with how to be a a non-black ally because even within, you know, the colorism that happens. So, you know, I think we're all feeling this sense of vulnerability of knowing we were wrong, and that takes courage, which is what you're saying, is we need that courage. So... Um, and I like that. I, I wasn't aware of that, you know, um, Cornell West. Uh, what was it? Tragic? Uh, tragic Comic Hope. Tragic Comic. I love that. Because yeah. that, I mean, that just is, just describes so much of the resiliency of people of color, right? And the ability to, and we were talking about it earlier, like, we just got to keep moving forward. You got to get up, you dust off, and you keep going, right? And, yeah, like, it, it, I mean, I say a lot of times it. If I'm, if, I'm not, if I'm not smiling and laughing about it, I'd be crying about it. And yep. I've been doing a lot of crying, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. since those eight minutes and 46 seconds, you know, like before and even more after. Right. Like we were talking about earlier, just things will just hit you a certain way because I feel it. It, it feels like a soul injury, you know, yeah. it's an injured soul. And, and I think that, I mean, I have no academic research to prove this but i do believe the epigenetic um impact that's that soul hurt that people feel right because generations and the um gene the 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 passing on of the trauma because we know it is and we know epigenetics is a thing it's a fairly new science but we know it exists right and it was done on holocaust survivors and their descendants and so obviously the same is going to happen for the black community and the communities of color and just that injured soul. So, woo, man, Damon, you got me going. (laughs) 
oh man, Hector, man, you know, yeah. I, I, you know, you got me going too. I was, you know, you giving out for every two that you give out. I'm like, oh wait, let me get one. <laughs> oh, giving man. me chills. Oh. Giving me chills. I, I, I get. And, and my my sense is, you know, when we talk about people that, that you know, quote unquote, don't know. I mean, we got to lay it down to what why they don't know. And it goes back to education and it goes by to who is writing the history that is being taught that allows people to quote unquote not know. So, you know, on one aspect, it's people of color, we're having to scour through uh, our own history books just so that we can feel good about who we are Mm -hmm. as people. Mm-hmm. That we're doing our outside learning, not sitting in the in the high school uh, history class. Not as a kid, I was like, "Well, I get, I, I guess we just must have appeared here in this country because I don't, you know, I, what and what contribution did you know Latinos ever make? Because they're not, I don't see them anywhere in this history book. We just." you know immigrated across the Rio Grande and here we are we came illegally you know to me that's the core issues of why it's perpetuated still that that white folks can remain in their little bubble and United States is a we've done all kinds of great things and you all just can't get on board and again it's again it's like it doesn't matter how many native americans that we see they continually are displaced or you know where they're at no i'm we were asking them either you're going to assimilate with us or you that poor uh reservation where there's no running water there's no real good health care for you well we're gonna just if we want to put a damn pipeline through your lands we're just gonna do it mm-hmm. but you all either gonna have to assimilate or stay where you're at mm-hmm. i mean those are the things that the, t- today we are asking people of color to do you either assimilate or go back to your own country i mean and because you know the history classes continue to tell us we've extended we you know we give we've given you guys more than what is your due and you still can't get on board when we all know that is not the case Mm -hmm. that is not history that is not truth absolutely so to me when people say well i just didn't know because you didn't want to know that's Mm -hmm. the reason why you don't know because you did not want to know Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm there's my soapbox. Sorry. No, yeah. You oh man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I just I, that was a moment. <laughs> I had a moment right there. <laughs> you know, uh so 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 just like like as a kind of like, you know, FYI, right? Like one of the first academic spaces that I I the non-traditional academic spaces I ever had the opportunity to um kind of walk in was was actually uh, barber shops and beauty shops mm. right <clears throat> so like it, you know anytime y'all go into you know like a barber shop or beauty shop like the conversations that happen around there mm-hmm. it's a crime how they're not in academia or how like these folks are not researching like i mean <laughs> you know so so you know when 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 I, I loved i loved the the um 
I love the nod that 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 Tori gave to how she's not an academic, but then dropped that multi-million dollar SAT word on us right quick. <laughs> she said the epigenetics is actually like I'm like, okay, wait a minute, what? <laughs> I didn't I didn't know that. I didn't know that that was a term and that was like a discipline right there. You just schooled you just schooled the professors. So, you know, I'm just saying the first academic spaces I ever walked into were barbershops and beauty shops. You understand? So you know, I'm I'm not even I, I don't even <laughs> you know, I man, I learn from I learn from everybody from all I do walks. feel very fancy when I say it, I'm gonna I'm gonna admit it. Like that's pro- that's probably half of why I say it. I'm like, ooh, I'm fancy, I know this word. And and it really <laughs> comes because I've been trained in trauma and trauma and trauma informed care and yeah. historical trauma and that is part of that learning is that our cellular makeup changes when we experience trauma. It changes even even in utero like that. To, the, to me, that's the mind blowing thing. So I think about in terms of racism. Right. And you think of a black mother pregnant, potentially mm-hmm. in, in in a situation where maybe all not her basic needs are not met. Right. Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. cellular mm-hmm. traumatic change happening before the baby's even here and then mm-hmm. introduced into a world of racism. Right. Like that trauma long-term trauma right because that's the thing with racism it's never ending and that's why it it's constantly activating black and and brown folks trauma system because we don't know when the hell is this gonna end you know and i think that the you know the david dave Chappelle thing right have you did you see that the eight minute 40 seconds uh 46 seconds dave Chappelle? yeah Yeah. yeah, yeah. when he said when he was talking about we saw ourselves in George Floyd's face. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're connected to that trauma. Yes. Epigenetically. That's the that's the thing. See, so like that's the thing about like mirror neurons, right? Mm-hmm. Like I didn't know that we were gonna actually go down this road, but yeah, okay, like like I'm definitely down. Like, let's go here. Because this here is the evolutionary part, right? Like yeah. this is part of like, you know, like the kind of new basis, right? So so like <clears throat> For me, I find value, so much value in not just uh, what the, the, the new concept, right? That, that I'm, 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 I'm calling it new for me because I, I didn't know that this is a concept until just now. Tori just schooled me again, and I love it. Like, epigenetically, there's generational trauma that ends up passing down the line, mm-hmm. right? That we're just now kind of walking. When I say we, I mean the public mm-hmm. right is just mm-hmm. now walking into an awareness of and is developing a language for and is also to kind of sort of something like mapping out a history to it as well mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. but also to write the discipline of uh, social social epidemiology so like take for example you know what my favorite thing to watch on the news right now is like specifically for the conversation on like racism and police brutality for like where we go here my favorite thing to watch or to listen to is listen to the doctors and the and the medical uh, 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 experts kind of talk, right? Mm-hmm. Just just so that way I can hear the logics mm-hmm. that they're using and their their structure, how they're looking and assessing the problem. Because newsflash, COVID nineteen shut down everything except for racism. Mm-hmm. Why? Because racism was the only other disease that it could not actually cure, or that it could not actually overpower. It's been here at the root, at the heart of the nation. Mm-hmm. So it ain't going nowhere, mm-hmm. right? Until we begin to actually structurally, strategically, and intentionally work against it, work to undermine it, mm-hmm. right? And work to undo it. Mm-hmm. So 
like the kind of first step in terms of how we kind of do that, I would actually say gets directly to the point that you're making about recognizing generational trauma. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like mm-hmm. if we can wrap our minds mm-hmm. around here, I, I'll say, I'll say it this way. Let me actually say it a different way. If we could actually, there's a movie, there's a movie that was directed by Tony K came out in 1998 and it is, um, it is my response, right, to when I get hit with the question from some of my white allies and white friends for, Dane, what can I do next? Like, or what do we do next? Like, what do the collective we do next, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I say, let's watch a movie, right? And they like, a movie? Bruh, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know what's going on? Nobody on the time with a movie right now. Like, no. Yeah, trust me. Tell me what to do. <laughs> right? Because this movie actually deals with that question in tangible ways. This, this film was directed by Tony K in 1998 called American History X. And this is yeah. not a film that children should watch. So if to yeah. any of our listeners, if they have children, this is not necessarily a film that you want to watch with your children, although I was a child when I saw it, mm-hmm. without having a conversation and providing context yeah. with them. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um so so that that's important context is important yes right even to our listeners or just even to us right like to to my friends i tell them like okay yo look so we gotta have this conversation about like where we are right now and how things got to be this way before we watch this film so that way we can have like some kind of context to understand how racism functions Mm -hmm. and the role that white supremacy actually plays and why what the film is suggesting is is suggesting is effective and yeah. is an effective strategy. Mm-hmm. I would also too throw in the mix like higher learning, right? Mm. That actually gives mm-hmm. the lesson right at the end of the movie. The literal message of the film is how American history starts. Mm-hmm. So like those two films, like in tandem, Higher Learning first by John Singleton and mm-hmm. then Tony Kay's American History X. Mm-hmm. The film American History X tells the story of a young man's journey to, as the title suggests, learn about the history that's unknown mm-hmm. to him. Learn about his history mm-hmm. that he never knew, but that he thought that he knew. Mm-hmm. So in other words, right, <laughs> um, kind of like taking a, a riff from Malcolm X, right? When he's on that news broadcast and the, and, the, and the newscaster actually tries to press him right after he, you know, gets announced as Malcolm X. And he's like, yo, well, but what's the name that you were birthed with? What's on your, your certificate, right? It's X. Here's the reason why. X represents, just like an algebra, an algebraic expression, the variable <laughs> of the unknown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is American mm-hmm. history. Mm. That's There's no period at the end of that. Mm-hmm. It's unknown. Mm-hmm. This is the history that's hidden. Yeah. And it's only, it's it's, we won't, begin to be able to take our first steps until we won't begin to we won't begin we won't be able to begin to heal the nation right and to begin to dismantle white supremacy and by extension racism institutionally and interpersonally we won't begin to do that until we begin with the inner work right which starts with us going back to explore our own histories Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what do i mean by that right so in the film it looks like the main character, Danny, who's a neo-Nazi, a junior neo-Nazi white supremacist in California, grows up in Venice Beach, California in the mid-90s, mid to early 90s, right? And, you know, he looks up and idolizes his brother, 
right? His brother, mm-hmm. his older brother, who was the leading neo-Nazi throughout of all of California, mm-hmm. period. This is in the film, right? Mm-hmm. And he goes to jail because he kills a black man, right? Mm-hmm. It was actually a... a, a um, it's a very, very hard to watch yeah. killing. Yes, it was. So just as an FYI, mm-hmm. I will give this trigger warning. It is graphic and it mm-hmm. is disturbing, mm-hmm. but it does indeed help to get at the point that the director is trying to illustrate and the point of, I think, that the protests are trying to illustrate too as well. Mm-hmm. So this kid is trying to learn about how it is that he came to be he's exploring his own personal history because he he gets pulled into a specialized class with the principal who makes him explore his own history yeah mm-hmm. right and how things came to be this way for him mm-hmm. so by engaging in the act right let's stop right here for a moment and unpack by engaging in this act right the principal his name is dr sweeney he's a doctor he's a black mm-hmm. man he's 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 also he started out he was not uh, i believe in the earlier in the film he was not a doctor Right. So getting back to the point that you were mentioning earlier, Sylvia, about how the higher you go, right, the fewer and fewer black folks you actually see. That's not even a a reality that 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 some white folks are ignorant towards. Right. Mm -hmm. This this one gentleman, Tony Case, knew about it enough to include it in this film, Mm -hmm. because when we're first introduced to Sweeney, right, he starts off as the leading neo-Nazi clan member. Right. Before he's a neo-Nazi guy. Right. He's actually just a student. He's just a boy. Mm-hmm. He's going to Venice High School, taking some high school classes. He's, he's in an English class. Mr. Sweeney is teaching this English class, and he has a Harlem Renaissance section, right? Mm-hmm. A Harlem Renaissance unit. Mm-hmm. And this little white kid, right, is getting exposed to Langston Hughes, Zora Neale Hurston, Wallace Thurman, all of these different folks in Dr. Sweeney's class. Mm-hmm. He and Dr. Sweeney made a bond right then and there over what his dad calls that black stuff, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So fast forward, his dad gets killed by gang fire mm-hmm. in the 1992 riots, mm-hmm. LA riots, right? And he, he's still a little boy. He's still mm-hmm. like a 17 mm-hmm. year old, right? And he's a character played by Edward Norton. He's so overcome with anguish, grief, and loss that, you know, he begins now to project his rage and hate on mm-hmm. the people who he assumed actually killed his dad, right? Mm-hmm. Which were... Wasn't, wasn't his dad a, like a firefighter, too? Wasn't there... Yeah, so that public servant, too, being killed by these people that are rioting. Yeah. Right? It's like, you know, what kind of people, mm-hmm. right? He says, mm-hmm. right, what kind of people would shoot at fire people, right? Mm-hmm. Firemen, right? He's, he's just mm-hmm. a fireman. He doesn't even have a sidearm or nothing yeah. like that, right? Understandably so. Rot with, with anguish and grief. So he and Sweeney's relationship ends up taking a dive. He grows up to become the head neo-Nazi guy, kills a man, and ends up going to jail. Sweeney, right, now, right, he after he went on to go and get his doctor, <clears throat> became now principal of the school, and now he's seeing his younger brother come up right mm-hmm. behind him And he sees that he's heading down the same pathway as his once former student. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know what? Uh Uh-uh. Come here. Grabs him right by the the back of his collar. (laughs) Boy. Right? It's kind of like a thing. (laughs) He's like, boy, come here. Right? He shows him a little bit of tough love. And he sits him down and makes him critically reflect on his past and how things came to be this way. So that requires that he actually goes back and revisit all of those moments Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that he saw 
with his older brother as he started to adopt the identity of becoming a neo-Nazi person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Long story short, Derek, or the older brother, right, goes to jail, ends up having a very rude awakening to where the veil was lifted over mm-hmm. his eyes. What veil am I talking about? The same veil that W.E.B. Du Bois was talking about in the souls of black folks when he's talking about the biggest problem in the 20th century is mm-hmm. the color line. Mm-hmm. He talks about it as a metaphor that he describes as the veil. Mm-hmm. The effects of that veil has birthed within black folks, right? And I would even also to say, right, by extension as well, right, white folks, a double consciousness, right? A, mm-hmm. two, a, a, a way of seeing themselves, right, through the lens of how mm-hmm. they see themselves, right? Their own agency. Mm-hmm. And then the lens of others, mm-hmm. right? Or the way that the world actually views them, mm-hmm. right? <clears throat> So this veil gets lifted over the older brother's eyes and he begins to see how problematic and convoluted and Mm -hmm. short-lived and unsustainable and Mm -hmm. all of these things, right? How false and fallacious the ideology of Mm -hmm. white supremacy actually is. Mm -hmm. Side note, right? If we actually go back into the history, like take, for example, if you read like just Google like Audrey Smedley. Mm-hmm. She's like a, a, a world-renowned leading anthropologist, cultural anthropologist who specifically studies race and like its invention, right? The mm-hmm. history of it, so on and so forth. Ruth Wilson Gilmore is another amazing scholar who, who also too kind of tracks this stuff out. All of the leading scholars and researchers on critical race, in critical race theory who've traced the origins of race back, right? Saw that it, 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 it's actually a myth. Mm. It's mm-hmm. literally based on a myth, mm-hmm. a myth that an often understudied area, right, in academia is intra-European slavery. Mm. This is like kind of like, 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 like proto-racial genocide slavery, which is the kind of slavery that we're talking about when, um, uh, 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 when folks reference 400 years, mm-hmm. right, of slavery, mm-hmm. solitude, mm-hmm. right, so on and so forth. Intra-European slavery, right, actually became like the kind of foundations it gave the foundations for creating this kind of new social caste system right mm-hmm. this kind of new uh, uh, uh hierarchical system right that was able to that that enabled people to just quite simply based off of phenotypical features right so we see this most especially mm-hmm. right with the with the with the with the highlanders right and lowlanders right the mm-hmm. scottish right at mm-hmm. right? the irish in particular right like and and and, and the british we see this kind of proto kind of slavery, these proto slavery mechanisms, mm-hmm. right? And, and kind of tools of imperialism actually being utilized as early, right? As, as, as kind of medieval Europe, mm-hmm. right? So when, if, if one were to begin to study that, right? Or if one was just to study the origins of the idea of race, right? Mm-hmm. By looking up like say, Audrey Smedley, right? then what, sh- what one would find is that it was a myth that was specifically told primarily in the colony of Jamestown, right, Virginia, with, by the British ruling class because they were actually getting outnumbered hmm. by both newly freed hmm. and still, in, uh, still in, 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 in servitude, right, blacks and poor whites, mm-hmm. right? So, like, blacks and whites... Mm. Black folks, right, who at this time they had no concept of race, right? So yeah. this the, the, the early machinations of slavery 
were based off of indentured servitude. Mm -hmm. So peonage slavery, right? So like the people who couldn't pay their debts in Britain, Mm -hmm. right, got shipped out to the penal colonies of like, say, right, you know, Australia, Mm -hmm. right, and also to the New World, Mm -hmm. right? Jamestown colony, Jamestown, Virginia, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Now they became, right, the low wage, right, Mm -hmm. or unpaid labor force. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they just quite simply had seven years to work off and this here actually enabled Mm -hmm. and gave, right, the ruling class and unyielding labor force to begin to build their wealth Mm -hmm. so pulling back from that side note right that's the reason why getting back to your your original question that's the reason why we cannot uncouple right if we're talking about undoing racism Mm -hmm. we can't uncouple racism from capitalism if we're talking about undoing racism then we have to talk about undoing capitalism And I don't mean socialism in its place. I yeah. don't mean communism in its place. Mm-hmm. I mean that we need some radical rethinking, mm-hmm. right? And we need new paradigms, new lenses, and new a uh, shift, right? To to conceptualize and imagine and to dream where we go from here. Yeah. If we're gonna if we're gonna attack racism, we have to. We also have to attack and address capitalism because slavery was the purest experiment in human history of capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. Even now, because yeah. they did not have to actually pay for the workers, and the and the workers themselves were property. Yeah. 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 One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Yeah. Um, and I also think, I mean, we have to real about it. Like it has to be a uh, real talk. Like. You know, I, I think people want to just kind of separate the two. And I think that's by design, you know, because uh, if you keep people ignorant, then we don't need to have a conversation. Because what most, I mean, here's the thing is, this is how powerful, you know, we're looking at is, I think of Sandy Hook. How many of those were 26, I believe? Children under the age of seven. They got massacred, and yet no gun laws. They couldn't agree on anything uh, to where nothing really is being done about that tragedy as far as, like, no type of laws around it. Other than, I mean, even down to the mental health debating. Why? Because within all that, it's about power. It's about uh, money. It's about. It's not about our the kids that were murdered. It's not. It, it has nothing to do with that. But I bring that up because I'm like, what in this country is the most precious things is white children, and even that most precious thing couldn't get people to say, oh hell no, Mitch McConnell, get the hell out of there. I'm putting somebody else in in your place. Mm-hmm. That didn't change anybody's attitude. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I I want people to have difficult conversations. Yeah. But I I guess it's the ballot box. We got to pull people out of like because I'm just sitting here and I'm like, as we're looking at a dumb buffoon in the office, uh, you know, the White House. What is McConnell doing right now? But putting in conservative judges that white conservative 200 200. judges in these spots that are young extremely conservative and white what does that mean for us as a country and and male and male don't forget that and we go to the courts, right 
That's right, and male. And we go to these courts so they can resolve these issues. And and this is where this is why I'm like people. If we had those real conversations, you folks that are pro Trump and all that, you would begin to realize you continue to vote against your own self-interest. Against you are so stuck on skin color that you're not recognizing you are just as enslaved as everybody else. You think yeah. you got something? You ain't got nothing. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the illusion. <laughs> that mm-hmm. is the illusion right there. Like it's yeah. the illusion that I have something even if I have nothing. Mm-hmm. And that's precisely what that myth, right? Going back to the Audrey Smedley article, that's precisely what she discusses. That 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 and- that is that's received from that myth. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's the same thing on the American X. He realized I don't have nothing. The thing that I thought was mm-hmm. the most important core belief, he's recognizing that changes in the environment that I'm in. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. But you know what was amazing? There's, I don't have, I have nothing. Mm-hmm. You, you, you know what was amazing to me in that film? while he was in jail, right? The, the parts where he was in jail, I thought were some of the most powerful parts of the film because it actually provides a little bit of insight. Actually, it provides a lot of insight for where we go from here and how do we do it. So, like, it, it's really interesting how they play it out visually. So he's in the jail cell with his cellmate, right, Lamont, who's played by um, Guy Tory's brother. I, I, I forget his name. His name is escaping me off the top of my head. But um, he's he's talking in his cell with Lamont, the, the, the older brother, right? The neo-Nazi mm-hmm. older brother character who's played by Edward Norton. He's he's talking in his cell with Lamont, and they're they're actually they're folding up sheets, right? And they're they're just having a whole conversation about, you know. James Worthy and Bill Russell and the mm-hmm. Lakers versus Celtics and they like man nah you know this also was ugly and this and that and this and this and whatever whatever right like each one of those scenes where Lamont is in it you see a shift actually happen in Edward Norton's character mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what is Lamont doing he's joking with him mm-hmm. he's connecting with him He's taking time to ask questions, right, about who he is, right? He's also, too, taking time to work with him, talking about Edward Norton's character, right? Like, Lamont is somebody who, in in that film, I think he kind of provides us with a blueprint for how to relate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because really, the the, the fundamental question that we're asking, uh, I, I think, is... Okay, it's not really, okay, what do we do from here? It's really, you know, how do we relate in ways that are authentic, Mm. in ways that are transparent, Mm -hmm. and in ways that can nurture both Mm -hmm. of us, Mm -hmm. right? And I I think that's really what we're trying to get at when, when, when we're asking ourselves, you know, the questions about, you know, where do we kind of go from here? And, you know, like, can I trust these folks? Can I not trust these folks right here? Right. But there's a reason why, right. We can't feel like, you know, we can trust all white people, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's because, you know, there's history, (laughs) 
you know, both personal and intergenerational, mm-hmm. right? That passes down. Mm-hmm. And also, too, there is a matter of like the current situation that we actually see happening right around us. Like, mm-hmm. take for example, like, Sandy Hook happened, right? And like that still wasn't enough to actually get people to to mm-hmm. to get legislators, right? To mobilize mm-hmm. legislators mm-hmm. to act in the affirmative direction. Mm-hmm. The affirmative direction, right? Or the affirmative action is indeed the right action, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's 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 moral, mm-hmm. right? It's moral. That's a moral question, mm-hmm. right? What direction should I go, right? It's a moral question. That is to say. What should you, what values should, I, I would rethink the question as, you know, okay, well, what values, right, do you need to keep? And what values do you need, are, are, are is time for, for you to let them go, mm-hmm. right? If we can kind of reflect critically on that, then I think that we would be able to, in, in more important ways, right, kind of open up similar to Edward Norton's character, right? we would be able to open up and be just a little bit vulnerable mm-hmm. enough to where we kind of have, right. We, 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 we take our courage with us, right. Even along with our vulnerability. Right. So, so we're, we're able to, if we're able to just to be vulnerable a little bit, right. But take that courage with us then we can be vulnerable just enough to say, hmm. Hey guys, I, I, my bad. Hmm. I mean, I ain't, I, I didn't have it. I ain't had it. Mm-hmm. My fault. And you know what? I don't really want to relive. I don't want to be Bill Murray no more. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be Bill Murray. I don't want. I don't want to wake up in Groundhog's Day anymore, mm-hmm. guys. Like, I need some help. Or can I actually? Can I? Can I? Can we just talk right quick? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you know, it, I think uh, Stefan mentioned this in, a, in, in the earlier podcast that it goes a long way just to reach out, right, mm-hmm. um, uh, to some of your black friends in that week, right, mm-hmm. during the week of George Floyd, because they're not okay. And, mm-hmm. and he was absolutely right. Um, you know, it, it, it goes a long way when you, when you show a little bit of vulnerability and you mm-hmm. take a lot of your courage with you because that helps you to keep that vulnerability mm-hmm. open. Mm-hmm. And if you can keep it open and even spread it out just a little bit more, right, as you're, as you're receiving right time, mm-hmm. right, and as you're receiving connection, testimony you're sharing, right? You're pouring and, and they're pouring, right? Then what you're able to do is you're able to break down that vulnerability and, and excuse me, you're able to open up and expand your vulnerability in such a way that you begin to break down, right? The subtle comfort, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Of the, of the illusion of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Not all that dissimilar from Edward Norton's character once he actually got released from prison. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I think, uh, I mean, as you're kind of, like, really summar- summarizing everything, and and it does take that vulnerability to, to be willing to build relationship. And, mm-hmm. um, I, I mean, I even find myself being just too angry, right? Like, and I said, oh, why the fuck should I talk to, you know, it ain't my fucking job to teach that person, you know? I can't fucking keep having this conversation. And like you're saying, one of the things that happened in that movie is they just kept having conversation. And they kept mm-hmm. relating and they kept, you know. Um, and I think that there's a, there's a piece of this too in terms of like, uh, 
you know, white folks who are, or even non-black folks who are willing to have those conversations, keep having those conversations with your other non-black folks who are wanting to, you know, it's like the lens, going back to your lens thing is lend people your glasses, see which ones work, you know, like, um, to me, that's kind of like that evolution piece you've been talking about and all of this. And it's, it's not easy work, but it's work worth doing, at least in my opinion. Absolutely. Heck yeah. No, I 100% agree. I mean, you know, going back to the evolution piece, like part of the reason why we just keep repeating, right? I mean, like if we want to be Bill Murray and Groundhog's Day, then, you know, <clears throat> let's continue to listen and let's continue to look through the lenses of revolution, mm-hmm. right? With the revolution, you're, you're not changing anything mm-hmm. except for the positions yeah. on the wheel. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Right. But I think that when it comes to take, for example, the conversation on police, um, here, here's a primary example, right? Here's an, here's how we're having the conversation using revolutionary terms, not evolutionary terms, police reform. Right. The entire debate over, like, say, policing right now is happening in only two kinds of ways. Reform actually is happening in three ways. Reform. Or abolition Mm -hmm. or keep things the way that they are. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. But maybe only a handful of people like just kind of like things the way that they are. Right. Um, and, 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 you know, I mean, for whatever the reason is, but. For the folks who, there's a probably a large majority of people who are more comfortable having the conversation about about reform mm-hmm. more so than they are about having the conversation. Just hearing the word abolition, oh, yeah. right? Freaks them out. So, it freaks them out. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, if 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 I could, right? If if I could, maybe perhaps provide a momentary suspension of disbelief. Do it. Do it. Right. Okay. So here's a question. How did things come to be this way? Simple question. This here's a question that we use to initiate like a look back, critical reflection. Mm -hmm. So when we actually take a look back at the mid 1970s, we begin to actually see there were a series of laws that were enacted, uh, specifically at the policy, at the federal policy level, really California state policy level. And then like we started to see California was like a little bit of a a kind of petri dish right for the nation <laughs> right like in california new york right a few other places with high concentrations of prison population and prison towns they 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 begin to actually legislate new laws that created the basis the found the foundational basis of what we understand now in the public in, in the public in the in the public mind's eye right of the public consciousness right of what we know and think to be a criminal mm-hmm. right like take for example, right, the Step Act of 1977 made it illegal, right, for black folks to actually congregate, but it wasn't necessarily in public spaces, but it wasn't necessarily written in, in that kind of language, right? Mm-hmm. Why? Because we actually have the introduction of a brand new kind of strategy that works to cover and hide mm. the racism mm-hmm. that once was spoken so prominently and pronouncedly. Mm-hmm. This is by Lee Atwater called the Southern mm-hmm. Strategy, mm-hmm. right? He literally introduces a new language, right? A new rhetoric mm-hmm. for understanding uh, post-racial policy, mm-hmm. right? For post-racial policy making, mm-hmm. right? So all of the lawmakers love this new language, mm-hmm. right? But 
part of the issue here is just quite simply that when we're thinking of of the of the kind of paradigm shift, right, and the 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 evolution versus um, uh, revolutionary kind of thinking, we hear it oftentimes in the new conversation about prison reform versus prison prison abolition. Abolitionists believe that excuse me, re- re- reformists, right, believe that you always need cops, mm-hmm. right, and that mm-hmm. there is no such thing as a civilized society mm-hmm. without police. Mm-hmm. There is no such thing as a civilized society. Civility and policing go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. However, the abolitionist, right, kind of believes or looks at the world from a different, through a different set of lenses. They look at the, the, the world through the lenses of Superman, right? They look at the world, they look at a world that's filled with prisons and police, right? Like having an overwhelming and predominant presence, right? In, across, uh, uh, um, uh, across the nation, right? Just within c- civilized uh, c- societies. Mm-hmm. They see that as a marker of failure of the criminal justice system. Mm. Not so much of its ability to, to, to uh, punish, right? But of its ability to solve the root fundamental mm-hmm. causes of crime mm-hmm. at its basis, at its foundation, mm-hmm. right? Which oftentimes leads us right back to the conversation about property, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Or who has it and who doesn't. So when you actually have a society in which you have people, some, who have access to very little property or very little things that they actually own, that means that they have very little access to wealth, mm-hmm. right? Which means, and I'm not talking about like them balling out of control, like like, like I, I wholeheartedly resist the very imagination <laughs> of the idea of the reason why black people don't have money is because they spend it on Jordans. Hey. Like, I'm sorry, but there's a Pew Research Center study that, I mean, will say it probably a lot more nicely than what i would and they would probably and they would give you references too to show that it's a little bit more than yeah. just jordans and yeah. game boys that 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 yeah. um kind of illustrate the reasons why black folks are kind of locked mm-hmm. <laughs> right into this kind of permanent working class position right but when we begin to cr- when we create a world or a society a civilization that just quite simply believes in giving access some access to a very small portion of people right to wealth versus right keeping everybody else outside of it when you create this situation where you have some who have more than the majority of everybody else then you end up creating a situation in which right like it almost as a means of survival becomes necessary because the majority of the people who don't have access to things that they own, things that they need in order to live, right, it almost becomes necessary for you to create a force or some kind of institutionalized mechanism, right, to protect or guard those small few people mm-hmm. who have a concentration, a high concentration of everything that mm-hmm. people need in order to live, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So that's what abolitionists, that, that's, that's a part of where abolition, prison abolitionists and police abolitionists are, uh, that's, that's a part of the worldview, mm-hmm. I know for sure, right? And part of the reason why I made like the Superman reference just as an FYI for any comic book or nerd folks on here, <laughs> like 
all you have to do is just quite simply go back to uh, Infinite Crisis, the battle between the old school Superman from the 1940s and then the modern day Superman. After they get through having this knockdown, drag out slugfest, which is really a metaphor for an ideological battle of old versus new or of revolutionary thinking mm-hmm. versus evolutionary thinking, mm-hmm. right? You kind of sort of have this knockdown, drag out slugfest, right, between the old Superman who has gray around his temples and he's the 1940s Superman versus the new Superman that we see. He's still got the spit curl, but he's <laughs> a little bit more modern. The old Superman brings the new Superman to his knees, and it's really just like he's berating him. He's like, you failed. You did this. You did that. You da 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 How dare you? How could you, like, create this world and not save? How could you How could you let the world devolve into such chaos like this and not save it? Mm. This is not the ideal world. This is not the world that we had, that, that, we, that we sacrificed for. This wasn't the world that we dreamed of. Mm-hmm. And the modern-day Superman, right? in all of his evolutionary thinking, <laughs> says, right, beat up too, right? He's, he's looking pretty toe up. <laughs> he says, but of course it's not. It couldn't be the ideal world. It couldn't be the perfect world because the perfect world doesn't need a Superman. Mm-hmm. Woo. Yeah. Wow. That. I didn't know I, I, I'm not a superhero so like that was good I like that that was that was good that was good yeah yeah wow well um that was deep that was that was deep and I just want to check in see how we're doing we're almost at two hours and that's okay again okay. we're we're not uh we're not white centered in, in time that's a very dominant culture norm <laughs> We are relational, and therefore we do not adhere to those. But I do want to be trauma-informed and check in. And, you know, we could, like we always say, when we're doing this, we could just keep going on and on and on and on. Um, but I do want to respect your time and, you know, you you being here with us for the last two hours and just check in and see, do you want to take a break? And then um, what we like to do is have your perspective on a story or two, you know, because that's what sure. we do. And I know Sylvia's sure. got a couple in, in, in the hopper there to 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 get your your lenses um so are you good with taking a break and then coming back and doing that absolutely 100 percent. i'm I'm here y'all have me for 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 the rest of the night (laughs) okay well let's take a quick break and then we'll get it back going go to the bathroom do all the things you you need to do all right we'll be right back all right daisy daisy what's your safe word what's your safe word daisy 